Maggie Gyllenhaal has been an award-winning actress for years. She's known for her intelligence and sensuality and immediacy on camera. With The Lost Daughter, which she wrote and directed, her first feature film, she has established herself as an amazing filmmaker. Based on a story by Elena Ferrante, Gyllenhaal shot the film in Greece during COVID with her dream cast, among others, Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley. Maggie, Olivia, and Jesse have all been nominated for Academy Awards for their work on The Lost Daughter. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Maggie Gyllenhaal. first thing is a person in your life who's had particular meaning for you or resonance or importance. Who would that person be? I think about this woman, Penny Allen, who was my teacher for many years. She was an acting teacher and she died a few years ago. She was an old woman and she had a really incredible life, but she really changed the way I thought about everything. I mean, like any good teacher, she taught me about, I mean, she taught me about acting. She taught me about thinking. I, I've honestly, she taught me about being a woman. I mean, I, wow. I she was a really incredible. She's in my mind all the time. In fact, I made this short film with Peter. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was during the pandemic. It's called Penelope after her. It's a very loose connection to how it's about her, but uh, it's about this sort of love affair that Peter has with someone who's clearly died, but with a tree. And she, uh, I I don't know. It's just like really in a way, everything artistically that I do, I almost kind of consult with her in my mind. How did you meet her? I met her actually originally. Well, it's weird how I met her. So when I finally met her, I met her through Peter. Peter had been working with her. But when I was doing secretary, and I met Peter right after that, she was working with Steve Shaneberg, who directed secretary. So I think back on it now. I mean, she's like a wild, wild personality. I mean, like the notes that she would give, you could never share them with a director because (laughs) they would freak everybody out. Oh, you have to give me an example. uh, Okay. One example. In The Honorable Woman, I remember there was a scene where she was like, maybe darling. And she had this like strange kind of put on voice, but she was anything but put on because she used to stutter, I think, or lisp. And so she kind of learned this funny voice, but she said, maybe darling, maybe in this scene, you're 104 and you've just eaten mushrooms. <laughs> and so obviously that would freak out the director if I said like, I'm playing the scene like I'm 104 and I've just eaten mushrooms. She doesn't really mean that, but it can warm uh-huh. you up and move you into some really interesting territory. So anyway, I realized that Steve Shaneberg had been working with her and I didn't know it when we were doing secretary. So like these incredible notes that would come through him. I think some of them, it was her speaking to me through him, even though we didn't know each other yet, you know, because she was giving the notes to him. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I just started kind of working with her on everything. I didn't understand her for a long time. And it wasn't until probably, I don't know, maybe an honorable woman that I really was like, oh, I get you. I'm hearing you now. What she was teaching me was how to be myself. 
how to work mm-hmm. also. I wanted to work, do my homework and prepare, but I didn't really know how until I was probably like 35, 36. And you were sharing her with Peter, your husband? He, he worked with her too? He did. And actually the great performances that you think of, like Holly Hunter worked with her when they were doing the piano and Nicole Kidman worked with her when she was doing To Die For and Matthew McConaughey worked with her. And and not all the time, I don't think, for any of those brilliant people, but she really had a way of getting people in touch with who they really were. And when you work with somebody like that, because I really don't know this, do you start from the beginning when they read the script or do you go to them when you have a challenge with the character or how, how does that work when you work with someone like that? I mean, it really depends. There's times where I didn't work with her at all, where I was like, I don't need Penny right now. Sometimes I would think that and then I would come to her and go, I need you. I remember doing Three Sisters with Peter and playing Masha. And I was like, I don't need her. I've got this amazing director. And I saw that. That was amazing, that production. Oh, that was such a pleasure. But she really got me in the lane. I remember one of the things, and she never said this explicitly, but that I realized about in that play, thanks to Penny, was I had thought, okay, Peter's playing Vershinen and I'm playing Masha. And like, this is going to be the love affair of the century. That's what we're going to be acting out. That was my fantasy of what this relationship was going to be. And that was not Peter's fantasy of what the relationship was going to be. And in fact, that's totally Masha who wants something that she is not being given. I mean, for Sheenan is a guy stationed in her town who she ends up sleeping with. Yeah. And for her, she wishes it would be the love affair of the century. And for him, he's got a wife and it's just someone he's sleeping with. And to be able to see my wish is Masha's wish. I can use my disappointment or whatever my feelings are. I can use them and make the part even more mine. Yeah. Wow. And when did she die? She died, I'm trying to think exactly when it was now. I think it was 2017. Oh, wow. So a while ago. So she didn't get to see you direct. No. And she worked with me on the first scene, the pilot of The Deuce. And then after that, she was gone. And I remember thinking, I wonder if I can do this without her. it's really what a teacher is supposed to be. It's not like it's a drug you have to take or you can't get up in the morning or something. It's like she actually taught me how to be an artist. And I would think about her when I was working. And I think sometimes, oh yeah, maybe that scene would have been better if Penny had been there to like really give me a push. And other times I think that scene was what it was because there was no interference. That was me. That was my mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good feeling. Yeah. But I also, I'm so influenced by her. Like I, yeah, I wish she could have seen my film and I did feel her somewhere on set sometimes. I think she would have liked it. Was she withholding of praise or did she praise you when she felt something was great? Because some teachers, as you know, their way of teaching is to withhold the the praise until forever. It's almost like a carrot that you're chasing. That's a good question. I mean, I think almost praise, it was like a whole nother paradigm 
It wasn't really about that. I knew after a while that she loved me and respected me and vice versa. And yeah, it was more like, does she see this is thing I keep saying lately, Peter keeps making fun of me actually, that like, is she picking up what I'm putting down? Because she's someone who could hear everything if it's there. Yeah, but she wasn't really like all about praise so much. She was pleased if you were like jamming, even if it wasn't totally working or... If you were giving it your all. Or like if you were in the territory of something alive. Wow, that's fantastic. I love that. Well, that's a good segue to a place or a location or some kind of physical space that actually is important to you. Is there a, a place that you have that means a lot to you? It could be a treehouse. It could be the ocean. It could be the theater. Mm-hmm. could be Greece. Well, right now, I am kind of in love with that spot in Greece. (laughs) Tell me how you found that spot for your movie. And the name of your movie is The Lost Daughter. Yeah. Oh, it's a really interesting story how we ended up there. So the book that The Lost Daughter is based on takes place in Italy by the seaside outside of Naples. And when I first adapted it, I adapted it to take place in the States to be kind of, I I never named where we were, but Eastern Seaboard, Lobster Rolls and Boardwalk, Maine, really, Gothic, someplace like that. And we went and scouted Maine early on and I loved it. It was pretty great. Then my producer said to me, Maine has a 5% tax incentive. I mean, meaning it's impossible for a tiny movie to shoot there. Mm -hmm. And So then we went and scouted New Jersey. That's a very big difference from Maine. (laughs) Well, we went straight to New Jersey because they have a 37% tax incentive. I see, okay. An extra 2% if you're women. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. That's fascinating. Or I think any minority. Uh Uh-huh. And so I scouted Cape May. Cape May is beautiful, but it wasn't right. And yet at the time, everything was happening so fast with this 37% incentive where basically we're financed, we can go and everything was moving very fast. And just then the pandemic hit. So this was what, February of 2000? Yeah, exactly. And we were moving toward being financed and March comes 2020 and everything gets shut down. But if you remember, nobody thought it was going to go on so long. We thought, okay, it's a couple of weeks. We're going to be okay. And so everybody kept meeting. We were in this early pre-production as if we were going to go. And after a couple of weeks, and it felt like almost like a kind of solve, like let's just have a budget meeting because then we're going to get through the day because things were scary. So eventually after a couple of weeks with New Jersey, like tugging at me, it was a feeling that I really came to recognize, to be honest, like something is wrong here artistically. And I thought, okay, first of all, New Jersey's numbers are awful. How are we going to shoot in Jersey? And if we don't shoot this summer, we have to wait a whole year because I've got actors in their bathing suits. Right. I wrote this essay to all the financiers, the producers, everyone involved. And I basically said, 
look, first of all, the numbers are terrible in New Jersey and this doesn't feel realistic. But second of all, New Jersey is not right. And here are are the reasons why. And I, I basically wrote, yeah, like a serious essay. It's funny, this is like a slight diversion, but I look at it, back at it now. I used to write essays like that when I was producing on the deuce or on the kindergarten teacher, like especially the deuce though, when I would need something artistically and I was not in control and I would see an early cut of something or read an early draft. And it was so important to me artistically to get this, you know, whatever small thing I needed in order to take care of Candy, my character. Like you can't cut the orgasm in that scene because the whole point is that this is an orgasm that's hers as opposed to the one that, you know, all the performative orgasms that you've seen her have for the whole season. But I would write these essays. I'm sure they were like kind of annoying. I really tried to make them not be. I tried to make them funny and like perfectly crafted and Uh not too pushy. And maybe in those cases, I would get some small percentage of what I was hoping for artistically. (laughs) But then here as a director, I did the same thing. I used my tools. I wrote this essay and everyone was like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. It was a completely different response. That's so interesting. Well, that that's a reason why people want to be directors right there. I mean, I have so many thoughts about why that is, which we can talk about. But to get to how we got to Greece, then we were like, okay. I have free. one question though. You never thought about leaving it in Italy. That never was a re- realistic possibility. Doing I mean, it in I felt like, I don't know anything about Naples, I see. you know? And she knows everything about Naples. Right. And I thought this book has resonated with people all over the world. I think it will work just as well set in my country as it will work set in hers. No, I agree with that. I just wondered if it felt somehow like you kind of had to because there were so many... I mean, it's so amazing that you got it in the first place. I mean, this woman is invisible and to get her permission must have been one of the greatest days ever. It was. Every interaction I've had with her, really, she's clearly a very wise and generous woman. I don't know her. I haven't met her. I've only written to her. But literally every single interaction has been about supporting me and- Amazing. Yeah, really amazing. I mean, I don't know if if I told you this, but when I first asked her for the rights, I wrote this letter and I said I wanted to direct it. And I, I didn't say- what I was going to do. I was clear that I didn't know yet and I needed to work in order to know, but I told her why I wanted to do it and which I can tell you, but she responded and she said, yes, you can have the rights, but the contract is void unless you direct it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's real support. Wow. From someone who knows more than me, clearly. And it just kept on like that all the way through. But that kind of belief is so powerful. That's amazing. That's so great. I love that. It was such an amazing thing to offer to another woman, another artist. Another and, artist, really. Yeah, I think it, yeah. you can even take the female out of the equation, which is also kind of great. It's just like yes. artist to artist. It's really yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so back to okay. Greece. So then we're like, okay, well, where are we going to shoot? Should we try Rhode Island? And their film fund was full, but it was a pandemic and everything was falling apart. So they're going to try and come up with some money for us to shoot there. But I have this very international cast and crew. I have a French DP, 
Israeli producers. I have Irish and British actors. And there was no way in the pandemic and with Trump, we were going to get visas. So then my producers were like, could you shoot in the UK? The UK is getting their film production up and running again. And Olivia is there. And I thought about it. And I thought, no, I don't know what it's like to be a British woman on vacation in England. You know what I mean? What does the milk look like? What does the towels look like? I mean, it's different. And then somehow, and this is something really cool that happened all the way throughout the process. And this is something that I do think Penny taught me to be brave enough to listen to out of somewhere, maybe my unconscious, but not anywhere rational. Literally, I woke up one day and I went, we could shoot it in Greece. (laughs) And what I mean in some ways, this is a weird example of it because it can take all sorts of forms, but being in the territory of what's alive, like I think that's something I just said to you like about Penny. Yeah. That was in the territory of what was alive. And it was so clear. As soon as I said it, it was like we couldn't be stopped. And had you spent time in this particular part of Greece before? No, no. It was a huge risk and leap. I mean, we had location scouts. We were location scouting remotely. (laughs) I I mean, not for our actual locations. We got to go there and do that. But for where we were going to land, we were doing it remotely. And do you know Greece well? I mean, have you vacation? No. Okay. I've been there. I've been there. (laughs) But it was like jumping off of a cliff. Yeah. In some ways. I look back on it too. And I think for a film that is, I mean, it's about all sorts of things, but one thing it's about is mothering. Yes. What could be more like the source of the mother than Greece? Very true. In our mythology anyway. So. But what I also really admire, and maybe this was some larger muse speaking through you, was your sense of what it had to be. Because a lot of people, when they're making their first film, are so excited about just getting the film made that they compromise all over the place just Mm -hmm. to get the thing accomplished. And it sounds like you wanted it to be great more than you wanted it to just be, which is so admirable and a a hard thing to stick with. That is very true. I mean, look, there were tons of things that had to be compromised all the time. And then there are other things where you go, well, no, if I compromise that, then the movie will die. Especially if you're trying to say something very specific and delicate. And if you don't say it clearly and carefully enough, you'll say something else that you don't mean. And so, for example, I mean, I remember going over the budget stuff and like, Everyone assumed, even though it isn't in the script, that we would see that car accident in the beginning, that you'd see the crash. Right. I don't remember what it cost, but it was some huge ticket item, like 50 grand. And I was like, oh, I don't care at all about that. I do not need to see the car accident. Whatever car accident you can imagine in your mind is going to be better than the cheap one we can do with our movie. And it's not important to our story. But what is important, for example, to our story that I couldn't bend on is I had to shoot the flea market scene with Dakota and Olivia, that long scene, which was even longer originally, that ends in her big reveal. I had to shoot that scene every time start to finish. 
Mm, You know, usually you'd break a scene like that down or sometimes, and maybe Olivia would have to like land on her mark at the end of the scene and deliver that secret in the film and Dakota would have to respond to it without having done the stuff that came before it, which as an actress, I mean, it's not impossible. You're asked to do that all the time, but it's not going to be nearly as interesting. Um, Also, it involves a a pin. So there's something really remarkable about that too. Oh, that one. Yeah. 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 Well, no, she throws it back at her at that end of that scene. Oh, well that scene, I'm talking about the one where she reveals what she did in that flea market. Also the one in her apartment that you're talking about. Yes. There were technical elements of that, that, well, again, those were things where I was like, what's the simplest cheapest way that we can do this so that we can focus on the acting, which is what's important in the scene. And so there are things that can be compromised. It's funny though, that when she pulls that pin out, I've been in a few screenings where people gasp and it's done. Yeah, I gasped. It's the most simple, technically, sometimes that's the most beautiful to construct something in just the simplest way. Well, because also it, uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but That scene represents, to me, a lot of things. There's an act of generosity that then gets rescinded. There's a kind of intensity about the pin. The whole thing, it it has a lot of impact for that moment. I gasped, I think. It's very intense. And also, there's so much emotion behind her refusal on both sides. Yeah. It, like... (sighs) thrills me when people gasp. Yeah, it's great. I have watched that a few times now because it's right at the end. And sometimes you'll come in at the end and do a Q&A. And I like to watch the end and just get in the vibe of the movie. And yeah. So when you got to Greece, did it fulfill all the expectations that you had in mind when you imagined it in Greece or imagined that location? I think wisely... I didn't have really set expectations. I mean, we made some really concrete decisions. I remember we were kind of between two places, this place on the mainland in the Peloponnese and then this island Spetsis where we shot. And it was interesting. It was like this mainland spot we were going to have as our production offices and our home base, this kind of big Marriott hotel that was making things really easy for us and really being so generous. But there was a real corporate feeling to it. And we were going to shoot in a couple of different locations and maybe even have to stay in different places and sometimes have long drives to get to the locations that felt like they were going to work. And then on Spetsis, there's an old school, which I think was from the 19th century originally. Spetsis was an old ship captain's island. So it was kind of international. You can see from the movie, but it's not like that classic Greek architecture. But this school was, I think, was for like the children, the boys of rich ship captains. It was then became, it was the school that, I don't know if you ever read the John Fowles book, The Magus. I did. In fact, I love that book. It's that school that it takes place at. And then in like 1981, they just closed the doors to the school and no one ever came back. Wow. And so 
I don't know, to me, I saw these pictures of the school and I was like, wow, we could shoot all the young latest stuff there. It feels like it could be, I mean, I have a brilliant production designer who worked wonders on it, but you would be surprised how there are so many things in Greece that could never be anywhere but Greece. But this school felt like, oh, it could be a floor of a brownstone in like Philly or Boston or wherever they might be when they're young. And also when I got there, it's like there are sculptures everywhere. You walk into a room and it's crammed with like 1950s, uh, oh, what was the word for it? Like like scientific models oh, wow. with glass cases over them wow. or all the teacups that were in the cafeteria, just in a case, a hundred of them on top of each other. And that was our production office. That was our home base. That's where we had lunch. That's fantastic. And, Yeah, it just felt like it had, it was about art. It was a creative territory. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right, so that creative territory brings us to our next question, which is, what is a thing? It could be a painting, it could be a photograph, it could be a stuffed animal, it could be one of your children's toys from when they were young that has particular, could be your wedding ring, that has particular impact or resonance for you? It's funny. I read this question before we started. And in the question, they said, it could be like a song or a movie too. Yes, it can. I I made up the question, so it can be I know. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was funny. I just tried not to decide anything. And I just thought, what's the first thing that floats up? And it's, if you gave me a chance to like, I don't know, filter or whatever. It wouldn't be this, I don't think. But what came to mind was Silkwood, the Mike Nichols movie. The Mike Nichols movie with Meryl Streep and Cher. Yeah, exactly. And Kurt Russell. Yeah, exactly. That's so interesting. I was like, okay, I'm going to go with that. (laughs) Were you very young when you saw it? I don't know the first time I saw it. I actually remember, okay, I didn't even realize this until you just asked me this. I remember my parents watching it on TV and finding it terrifying, like not really watching all of it. I mean, I think it came out in like 81 or something. I was born in 77. I didn't see it then. Well, I mean, I thought maybe you saw it like as a teenager on the Z channel or something. Okay. I don't even remember the first time I saw it, but I was so blown away by it. It would have been a great part for you, actually. I mean, now that you say it, I know this is sacrilege with Sophie's Choice and everything else, but it is far and away my favorite Meryl Streep performance. Yeah, I think so too. Then I just started watching it. Then I watched it again. I was doing like a shitty movie that I should never have been in. And I was really unhappy and I was really lost. And I just like went to Silkwood and I thought, oh, I'm just going to watch this scene or that scene. And then I end up watching the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, what an incredible movie. Then... It happened again where I was shooting the deuce and there was a scene with me and my kid and James Franco was directing actually. And I remember saying to him, do you remember that scene in Silkwood where she goes home to her kids who, by the way, it occurred to me the other day, that's a character who left her kids. Oh yeah, Um, absolutely. And she goes to them and she's going to take them to lunch and she kind of has a fantasy version of what it's going to be. And it's so hectic. She's got like three small kids and... It's an incredible scene. And so I said to James, will you watch that? And then I ended up watching the whole movie again because it was so good. It also would have been a very good part for your husband. He could have done Kurt Russell's part really well. Oh my God, he would have been so good, yeah. (laughs) He would have been so Um, good. But then, okay, so 
yeah. And again, I didn't mean to watch the whole movie over and over and over again. I was just fascinated by how excellent it was. And then I worked with Mike Nichols once. (laughs) He actually just like tricked me. I mean, I love his movies. I think they're so, so good. I remember he called me and said, I'm directing this play. Will you come? Actually, he said, Meryl Streep was supposed to play the part, but she couldn't do it. We've come through this reading of this play. It's this big deal. It's at Lincoln Center. We'll rehearse it for a week. And then it turned out he wasn't actually directing it. He was like overseeing it or something. What was it? It was this play that Alan Alda wrote about Marie Curie. Oh, I would have done anything. Didn't matter what it was. So he he came to the first day of rehearsal and we did the read through and it was pretty good. <laughs> but it was very conventional. I was very conventional, I think, in this reading and not in the territory of being alive. And I wasn't sure how to get in there at that point. And he just came over to me and he gave me one piece of direction. And so like, I'm playing Marie Curie, the scientist. First, he told me I was wonderful, which I think is important to hear when you're an actor. Or anyone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you can tell that he loves his actors. And then he said, I think she's feral. Ooh. Yeah. It took me a while to digest what that meant. And I've thought about it a lot since because it just totally kicked me over into the territory of the alive. And all of a sudden, Marie Curie was full of rage, rightfully, and all sorts of other things. Because that note, it's just utterly freeing, right? It's just somebody saying to you, any instinct you have is fine with me. Uh And in fact, what I want, I want the wildest edges of who you are. And I was really inspired by that. In fact, I stole that note and gave it to an actor on my phone. (laughs) Which one? I gave that note to Dakota. Uh Uh-huh. I thought so. Yeah. Because that's the way she plays it. And I don't think she's ever played anything that way. Mm -hmm. Because she can be very quiet and you made her more of an animal. Well, I think about Dakota... I can't think of an actor who is simultaneously as vulnerable and as powerful. Yeah. In your hands. I think you see that in her and bring it out in her. But I'm not sure that's been in other performances as much. I have barely seen any of Dakota's movies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're making my point. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that woman, man. I really do. And she loves you. She's crazy for you. I mean, all of us, I have to say that was another thing I, I mean, well, that's one thing I've thought a lot about recently, actually, because in interviews, people will say like, you've never done this before. And of course, no, I haven't. But I have this gift from having been an actor for so long that almost no other directors have, which is I've worked with many directors. I don't think that's the whole thing. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit, to be honest, because I think you can work with directors as an actress or as an actor and not absorb anything. I think it's you. What you've absorbed that you've then given back has to do with what you saw and what you have taken in. 
I think in many cases, people just react to whatever the director says rather than taking it in. Well, I mean, it was so clear to me from having worked with sometimes people who were terrified and it made them brutal Uh or people who were just self-consumed and not interested in the people around them and how painful that is when you're a collaborator with them or sometimes people who were really full of love and the difference in the work that came out of me when people were loving and cared about me or were interested, respectful of my mind as a creative collaborator. It was like night and day for me. And so one thing I knew was, I mean, I don't think you can fake it. You can't hire someone that you don't respect and then actually love them. Oh, maybe you can. I haven't tried that. But um, if you are working with people who you respect and who you're curious about, I do think a really important part of the job of directing is actually taking the time and the energy to love them. And also, I think, to encourage them. The thing that's notable to me about The Lost Daughter and the fact that it does not seem like your first film is the courage of the performances. Not that these aren't great actors because you picked wonderful actors, but there is a consistent courage in your own performances. You're always exceedingly brave and willing to be extreme, you know, in one way or another. And this movie is very brave in its concept. It doesn't sugarcoat it, which is a hard thing to do. At the end of the film, it isn't like you have everyone with a smile on their face. Mm -hmm. And that takes courage. And it also takes courage in what you have the performers doing in the film, which is very different from most people's first film. It's impressive. It's very impressive. And I, you may have learned it from other directors or you may have learned it from your own work, but you have it in spades. You have that courage. Well, I mean, here's the other thing. It's like, I mean, I don't know if I even really totally understood this the last time that you and I spoke, which was a few months ago. Yes. And I was just learning about how I felt about all of this. I mean, I still am, but I think that always I was a director Mm. and I just didn't know it. And so I didn't even let myself consider it. But so when I look back on, I mean, first of all, I think that The Lost Daughter is definitely in the line of my work as an actress. Like it just is moving, yeah, forward. But Also, what I guess I mean to say is I was always bumping up against the edge of something as an actress. And Mm -hmm. what I've realized recently is I just thought that's how life is. Uh I just thought like, okay, well, as an artist, you're always got your hands a little bit tied. You're always a little bit limited and you just have to work around those obstacles. And then I became a director and I was like, oh my God, I'm totally free. And I think I did not want to take any of it for granted. Like I said, I I compromised where I could and not where I couldn't because I had spent so much time compromising so much. And I was like, 
I see that this is where we need freedom here. And so I guess a lot of things that I had kept inside now had a space to come out. I mean, so like going to the editing room, for example, was like heaven to me. I did not take it for granted for one second. Or with my actors, I was taking care of them. I've worked on things that were so scary and were so vulnerable and not been taken care of. And I know what that feels like. I actually was taking care of them. So, and I think you know that when someone's taking care of you and when I'm going to take that work and I'm going to hand carry it in my heart (laughs) back to the editing room. And then I think brilliant people like Olivia and Jesse and Peter and Dakota and Ed, I mean, Paul, they want to share themselves with you. I asked you a question that day, which is why you didn't give yourself the part. Here's the thing. Now looking back on it, first of all, thank God I didn't because... Well, she's amazing, but you would have been amazing too. But also, I love my movie. I love my movie. And I couldn't have made that movie if I were acting in it. I just know that. I mean, I didn't know that then, but I do know that for sure now. Maybe one day I could, but... Also, I mean, here's another another question that like a lot of people have asked me, and this is an answer to what you're, what you asked me is like, did I write it for Olivia? And the truth is, is like, no, not only did I not write it for Olivia, I didn't write it for anybody. I just, I had a fantasy, not totally set, but like kind of an amorphous fantasy in my mind of who this woman was. And Olivia could not have been more different than that fantasy, but how awesome, because then who Leda is, is this exponentially bigger combination of Olivia and her, I mean, I think she's in another stratosphere. I really do. I think she's a totally brilliant actress mixed with my fantasy. Right. Like both of our minds kind of exploding into each other. And if it were me, especially since I wrote it and directed it, it would just be limited to me. something in your life that initially started out to be a not good thing that turned into a good thing like a part you didn't take then you did another part or a person you broke up with and then you met your husband or something (laughs) that was not a positive that turned into a positive I mean okay I have a few but I when I read that question and I did the same thing and I was in the taxi coming home and I was like okay what's the first thing that comes to mind okay the first thing that came to mind was (laughs) There was this time <laughs> I was shooting the deuce. Which season? Um, second season, because I was uh-huh. blonde. I remember going to the pediatrician in Vermont, like with this bleached out blonde hair, like rushing to the pediatrician because both of my children, even though they were totally vaccinated, ended up with whooping cough. Oh my God. Yes. And that's so 19th century of you. I, I know. <laughs> I know. It was crazy. So they had whooping cough. My husband also had whooping cough and had a broken foot. And I had to have this minor, but it was real 
surprisingly, I had to have this little surgery. And I was in my doctor's office and just saying like, what, what is going on? My kids have whooping cough, which is really, is no joke, Lynn. It's hardcore. And What I'm is whooping shooting- cough? Because I really don't know. I'm sorry to say- does that just, cough. just like coughing, like you can't stop you, coughing? You cough until you throw up. Oh my God. It goes on for three months. Oh, Jesus. It's, they call it the 100 day cough. Oh my and God. it's really awful. And Peter then had broken his foot. And then I had to the surgery. It was crazy. And I said to my doctor, Could it be worse? And she's amazing. And she looked at me like really straight in the eye. And she was like, Yes, Maggie, it could be a lot worse. Oh my God. And she just stunned me. I was like, oh my God, you're right. And all of a sudden I was like, thank God that we only have whooping cough and a broken foot and this tiny little thing. I was like, oh my God, thank God, thank God. And and I don't know, it just kind of like, she, again, another wise woman in my life that just like set me straight. I was like, oh my God, fuck. Yeah, you're right. Could be a lot worse. And they all recovered, (laughs) I hope. Yes, of course. And that's what she was saying. I mean, yes, everybody's fine. It was just a tough moment, but... And it lasts three months. That's not a moment. That's a while. Yeah, it sucked. It really did. I mean, it really did. (laughs) But we did it. And now (laughs) we have lots of empathy for people (laughs) who aren't feeling well. (laughs) Did you have a hard time during lockdown? Was lockdown difficult for you? I mean, lockdown was difficult for everybody. Did you have to teach your children? Were they doing remote? Yeah, I did. One of my daughters is a little bit older. She's 15 now. So she was 13. And at that age, she was pretty much doing it herself. But my little one basically learned to read with us. Oh, wow. Which is pretty cool. She was on the later side of learning to read. And it was like I watched someone like learn to ride a bike. That's kind of great. Yeah, it was. Was it hard? Yeah, it was was very scary, but we were safe and we didn't get sick until recently, (laughs) but we were safe and we live in New York. So we knew a lot of people who were very sick, but I was thinking this about the film because we made the film during lockdown. Yeah, before vaccines and just at the very moment that SAG even had protocols, like we we were figuring it all out ourselves and as we went along, but everyone would come off the boat because you took a little boat to get to the island. So excited to be with other people, to be working, to be touching other people, to be, and I was thinking about how sometimes when there's a lot of death around, it makes people double down on being alive. Definitely. And also, I think they treasure the things that they forgot they treasured. Exactly. And different things than they thought they treasured. All right. So let's do your pure, because you're going to have to go. They're going to interrupt me and they're going to send you away from me. So let's do your purely joyous moment. First thing that comes to mind, what was your Again, yeah. First thing that comes to mind, and I want to preface this because it maybe sounds a tiny bit cheesy, but I want to preface this by saying, okay, I have known Peter for a long time. We've been through all sorts of things, ups and downs. And, you know, I met him when I was 22 or something. Our wedding, I remember the next day after our wedding and we like danced all night long at our wedding, just noticing, I was like, I am maybe happier than I've ever been. Oh, wow. That's so great. Where was your wedding? 
Our wedding was in Southern Italy, probably pretty close to where the book <laughs> takes place. You know, Lost Art takes place. It was in Puglia. Oh, um, I love Puglia. Beautiful. And actually kind of like my movie, I we had planned a wedding somewhere else and everything just started falling apart about the wedding. I would call my best girlfriend and say, okay, I'm getting married. Here's the day. And she would say, oh, I was just going to call you and tell you I'm having a baby and that day, you know, or whatever, things like that. Everything was wrong about it. And after a while of like trying to like fighting uphill with that wedding, I was like, you know, forget it. I'm canceling it. Then I went to dinner with an old friend of my mom's. It was actually an old boyfriend of my mom's who ended up gay. And I was with him and his husband. They said, oh, I know where you should get married. You should get married at our friend's little inn in Puglia. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Okay. (laughs) And then this friend of hers turned out to be really sick. And he had a big, maybe 80th birthday party and invited us and invited this woman who owned this inn and sat me across from her. Her name was Athena. Wow. And I fell in love with her. And she said, yes, you should come get married at my inn. And I was like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I think I actually will. And I, Peter and I kept trying to figure out a time to go look at it. And then he said to me, you know what? Let's not location scout our wedding. Let's just go there and get married. Wow. And so we just showed up with like 30 people. Our daughter was two and we'd never been there before. <laughs> what month of the year was this? It was May. May, perfect month, best flowers. And we danced all night. It was amazing. What was your first dance? What was your first dance to? What song? Well, okay. The music at our wedding, we had made a little mix, which I thought was going to like be our music. But Athena had said to me, she said, you have to just let me get this band. And I was like, oh, okay. She was sort of in charge. And late at night, this, all of a sudden, this just like this music starts and it's the Tarantella. I don't know if you know that kind yeah, of music, I do. but the myth of the Tarantella is that the women would be in the tobacco fields picking cotton and they would get bitten on the inside of their thighs by spiders. And they would dance to this like rhapsodic music to sweat out the poison. Wow. And that's kind of what happened. Like we, this band started playing and we did not, we danced all night. Like we danced all night. It was incredible. It was so fun. What was your wedding dress? Oh, my wedding dress is great. It was Dries Van Noten. Uh-huh. And again, I hadn't really seen it. I kind of said, would you make this for me? And he said he would. And I gave him some ideas and then I see the dress. And at first I was like, oh my God, I'm not wearing this. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and I had had another dress like in my suitcase and all of my friends, my friends and my mom and everyone were like, you're crazy. And I, I guess I must've realized that was true because I put it on on the day and I was like, what was I thinking? This is incredible. And it was, it was so beautiful. It was this like white dress and it was dipped in kind of like a red orange at the bottom. Oh, kind wow. Of came up the bottom. Yeah, it was beautiful. And I didn't wear any shoes and I didn't have any makeup and hair because like makeup and hair feels like work. Oh, that's so interesting. And Peter wore a suit? Peter wore like a kind of slightly pink suit. Oh, that sounds great. 
And our daughter, Ramona, was too. <laughs> so she was there. Was she the flower girl of sorts? Yeah, she was. She was. And all the other kids who were there, I think, joined in. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, it was great. It was really small. And and I do remember that next day, it was so sunny and just thinking, I'm happy. Well, that is a beautiful place to end. And <laughs> thank you so much for everything. Most of all, you and your film and for talking to me today. It was fantastic. This was so nice. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg. The podcast is produced by Michael Becker with sound engineering by Rich Zerbini and Max Solomon at The Hangar Studios and additional audio engineering by Kara Johnson. The theme song was written and performed by Blondin Carr. Many thanks to Feline Newman, Jessica Uzan, Barbara Pero, Amanda Silverman, and Carla Marcantonio. Special thanks to Sarah Moonves, Editor-in-Chief of W Magazine, and, as always, Zora. Don't forget to follow W Magazine on Instagram or wmagazine.com. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch my screen test videos with people like Penelope Cruz, Denzel Washington, and George Clooney. Thanks again. Thanks again.